Well, thank you to the worship team. Even as we're singing and worshiping, we're, we're in this process of quieting our restless hearts as we bow before the Lord. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 5. Our target verses are going to be verses 23 and 24, but uh, 22 through 24, but I, I'm going to read from verse 16, and I'm actually going to ask you to stand as we revere God's Word It is God's Word. It's His inspired, inerrant Word. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me now? Holy Father, In your care for us in and through Jesus Christ, your own dear Son, we pray that you would send your Spirit, even the Spirit of your Son, to constrain us, to convict us, and to comfort us. We pray that your sovereign grace would be felt among us as we focus on Christ and enjoy your Spirit's filling. Fill us now, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your seats.
if you took the Spirit out of your life, what would happen? If you added the Spirit to your life, what difference would it make? It's a fundamental question, both to recognize that there is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, but also to recognize whether or not the Spirit makes a difference. And just even thinking about what difference the Spirit makes, I had a chance when I was recently in New Mexico to speak with Jamie Dunlop. He's one of the pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He, he wrote a book called The Compelling Community. And we've talked a lot about that book here. And in that book, Jamie argued that the church should be a community that only the Spirit could produce. That the church should be a community that is only bound together by Jesus Christ. That the church must be held together by the gospel. And if the gospel is taken out, then you don't have a church, you have some other connection. And so, kind of the question you can ask is, could a group, a church, a gathering, an organization, could it continue on as is if you took the gospel and Christ and you took the Spirit out of it? Could it carry on? You know, and I, I've thought about, you know, you, you could have things like, like a Christian hiking club. Well, if you took the gospel out of the Christian hiking club, took the Christian part out of it, you could still keep on hiking, couldn't you? The mountains are there. Go hiking. You could, you know, you're all friends. Let's go, go for a hike. But the gospel wouldn't be there anymore. You could have a, a church based on ethnic traditions. You could take the gospel out, and you could keep the ethnic traditions going for many, many years, as we see in many churches around us. I've thought a lot about uh, the so-called phenomenon of the cowboy church. You might think, yeah, I know all about it. But the problem is the cowboy churches, they actually probably could keep going even if you took the gospel out of them because they would just keep on playing the country music and everybody dress Western and you'd have everybody be positive together and you kind of carry these things on without the gospel. But a church is a compelling community because it has this magnetic force that is the gospel. The Spirit holds the community together in Christ. Without Christ and without His Spirit, and His Spirit obviously testifies to the gospel, without all of that, then what are we? A conservative political action committee? Is that what we are? We're a social club. We're nothing more than a sports team. Lots of energy and fervor, but no Holy Spirit. You wouldn't have a New Testament church. Well, you can apply that logic to the individual person. The same is true for a Christian. If a person does not have the Spirit, they are not a Christian believer. 
They might go to church. They might own Christian books. They might have Christian family members and Christian friends and Christian associates. But they're not a Christian because they don't have the Spirit. A Christian has the Spirit of Christ because they are united to Christ to to glorify God the Father. That's what a Christian is. Without the Spirit, you're just a regular person living life with actually the Creator's curse on you. That's what you are if you don't have the Spirit. So what difference does the Spirit make? To come back to the opening question, we're going to see first today that the Spirit actually changes you. Secondly, we'll see nine characteristics of this changed life. And thirdly, you'll see that you, you personally, not just generically, you, you personally can be changed. And right now, if you are in a rut, if you're feeling trapped, you might have big doubts about whether or not you, you yourself, can actually change. But the truth is, you can be changed. You don't have to be the same. The Spirit can actually change you. And that's my hope, is that for all the people stuck in a rut this morning, you will come away with this hope that the Spirit could change you. And you could look to Him and He'll do that. Because that's what we all need. That's what we all need right now. So the first thing to see, then, is we're going to see from the context that there is this sort of unchanged, unredeemed life that God saves you from when you believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Christ, you submit to His Word, you submit to His Spirit. And that old, unchanged life we just read about is expressed in this phrase, the works of the flesh. You see it in verse 19. And it's a really, really long list there. You know, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So Paul lists 15 different characteristics of the cursed life of of the works of the flesh and he kind of gives up he kind of gives up listing them all and he just says and things like these (laughs) these are the works of the flesh so the thing to take away from seeing that is there is no such thing as just live and let live There is no such thing as just coasting along in life and assuming that you are somehow morally neutral. You're not. Rather, without Christ, you're actually under a curse. And even then, your attempts to meet God's standards, to try to mitigate against this curse, all those attempts to keep His law, they're doomed to failure because of your sin. And so Paul says earlier in chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
I know we're in this totally secularized age where to even bring up the idea of being under a curse seems loopy. But God has cursed mankind for its sin. And you have to deal with that curse. How are you going to face it? Well, you're not going to face God if you're under the curse. You need some way for the curse to be lifted. And this curse is felt in your flesh. Now, when I say flesh, and you read flesh, you think physical skin, don't you? Oh, I cut myself in my my flesh is opened. But in the Bible, your flesh is a term used for this dynamic principle of rebellion. Rebellion against God. And you can either stoke that rebellion, you can stoke that dynamic principle of rebellion, or you can suppress it. You can suppress it. The flesh can be fed fat, or it can be starved thin. And Paul said to the Galatians earlier in chapter 5, he said, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So even for the Christian believer, the flesh remains, and the flesh must be put to death, Paul will tell both the Ephesians and the Colossians. It must be mortified, put to death. It must be cut out, put away. Of course, that's the teaching of Jesus. What are you to do with your eye that caused you to sin? Pluck it out. He's not talking literally about plucking out your eyeball, but he was talking about defeating and putting down this flesh principle. The Christian life, you could say, is a process of starving the flesh by being nourished by the Spirit. And this is what we see in this passage, this this opposition between the Spirit and the flesh. But sadly, too many Christians live by nourishing the flesh and being starved of the Spirit. And that might be you here today. You've been feeding and nourishing the flesh in all manner of ways, but you're you're starving yourself of the Spirit. Paul concluded that the Spirit and the flesh were opposed to each other when he said, just before our target verses in verse 16, he said, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, like, when you're walking in the Spirit, you can't gratify the desires of the flesh. You can't do the both at the same time. So it's kind of an easy calculus, isn't it? When you're fulfilling the desires of the flesh, you know you're not walking in the Spirit. It's pretty easy. you know. And when you're walking in the Spirit, you can have comfort that you're not gratifying the desires of the flesh. He says, verse 17, "...for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh." For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 7, and at least in my understanding of Romans 7, is that, yeah, he, he wants to do good. He desires to do good. But the flesh principle prevents him. 
So he's got to put the flesh down. He needs to walk in the Spirit. He needs to cut the flesh out, this dynamic rebellion principle. So the Spirit actually changes you. The Spirit is opposed to your flesh. It's opposed to this curse principle of rebellion. But as the desires of the Spirit grow in you, then they're going to attack and they're going to suppress and they're going to starve the desires of the flesh. And that's what theologians call the process of sanctification. That's what it means to grow more and more sanctified, to become more and more sacrosanct, to, to become more and more of a sanctuary, we might say, a purified, holy dwelling place for the Holy Spirit to reside and to rule. It's just like anything. You, you tramp dirt into the house, you've got, it's got to be cleaned up so that the house is clean and there'll be dust and dirt come in. It's got to be cleaned out. And the process of that cleaning out in every nook and cranny is the process of sanctification. But it's the Spirit who does it. The Spirit is the one who purges the curse and who cleans up the pollution in your life and who sanitizes the sanctuary. We all know about lots of sanitizer. I put some nasty sanitizer on my hands just in the back after handling all of your cups here. We didn't do that in COVID, but now we're back to, you know, getting all the grimy stuff on there. And the, the cure is worse than the problem, I think, with that sanitizer. You smell your hands after, and you need to wash your hands, right? So nasty. Maybe we need better sanitizer in the church, I guess. But you got to ask yourself this morning, and this is, this is the time to ask it. Are, are you in need of change? Like, are, are, do you have to change? Have you been coasting along not realizing that you've been feeding your flesh and letting the curse have free reign in your life? Well, it ought not to be. But the Spirit actually will change you. So you are called to, as we just read, walk by the Spirit. When you commune with and, and talk to and pray to and fix your, fix your eyes and fixate upon Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ's Spirit fills you and guides you and changes you. That's why we keep saying, oh, you've got to look to Jesus. And it gets to be almost a mantra, and then you lose, it loses any sense of meaning. But as you look to Christ, it is His Spirit that is changing you. That's how it works. But then what are the changes that the Spirit produces? How do we know the Spirit is at work? Well, there will certainly be, these, these changes are going to be different than all the works of the flesh. But Paul then lists nine changes that the Spirit produces. And this is, these are your memory verses on the fruit of the Spirit. What do we see there? You, you pick it up then, you see it in verse beginning, in verse 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is first, and this is my second point, the nine changes, the first is love. 
Agape. What is love? Love's always one of those ones. It's, you, you think you know what it means until you're called to kind of define it. You know, it's difficult. But love is, is that, that self-giving that always, always starts with the giving of attention and adoration and affection. Now, what's the opposite of love? And this is what I'll do with all of these, because I, I find to understand something, it helps to look at the opposite. What's the opposite of love? Well, we normally would say the opposite of love is hate, right? That's what we always think. But actually, really, the opposite of love is indifference. Indifference. Hate actually gives full attention to someone to destroy them. So people get confused because they'll say, I don't hate my wife. I don't hate my husband. I don't hate that person at church. Well, no, they don't. But they don't love them because they're basically indifferent to them. Oh, I'm not hating them. Yeah, okay. But you're so indifferent, there is no love that you have for them. They don't give of themselves to their spouse or to the church member or to the neighbor or to the enemy in a way that gives them attention, that gives them adoration, that gives them affection, that gives of oneself to them. Remember, Paul had said that the Christ-like mind was to, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And there's a lot of indifference that doesn't bother to look. Husbands and wives, kids here, church members, employers, employees. You don't want to look at their interests because you're indifferent to them. You literally don't care. Only the Spirit then can produce in us this self-giving attentiveness to others. And I say only the Spirit can Because it requires the Spirit to do what we won't naturally do. Only the Spirit can produce that self-giving attentiveness to others, especially when those people are not pleasant to love. It's not enjoyable to love them. It's not interesting, fascinating, exciting, pleasant, thrilling to be interested in them, to be attentive to them, to be self-giving to them. And so you're indifferent. And actually the indifference then is the opposite of that love. When we are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, we will be indifferent to others. And I think that That's a pretty clear gauge 
for all of us in our relationships. What do we say? Nah, I don't got time for that. That's our indifference. That's an expression of lovelessness. But the Spirit, when, the, when you see the Spirit is helping you to give attention to adoration, even affection to someone, and they're not easy to love, you know, ooh, this is, this is Jesus doing this. He's, he, it's His Spirit. That's love. What about joy? Joy. Kara is the Greek word. Now, if you've been in church circles for any length of time, you, you've heard that, oh, well, we're supposed to make this big distinction between joy and happiness. And we're told, we've been told that joy isn't dependent on circumstances, whereas being happy only happens when good things happen. Now, all this may be true, but I've also seen some folks become so fussy about this joy-happiness distinction that they'll be miserable and they'll redefine it as joy. They just, they're just, they just are grumpy and miserable, but well, I'm just try- I've got the joy of the Lord, but yeah, you know. You know, they'll be stoic. Oh, well, I got joy in the Lord. You know, I can't even do it because I want to laugh. But you, you know what I'm talking about. Going to grip my teeth and have joy in the Lord, you know. But joy's about delight versus despair. It's, it's delighting. It, joy, joy delights in God rather than despairing in circumstances. It's about God. That's what joy is tethered to God. So joy always, I think, has a happy component to it. And even when we have joy in the midst of sorrow, we don't feel generally happy, but we find a happy relief in the fact that God is sovereign over our sorrows. There's a relief there. My life is brutal, but God, God is still there. And there's a happy sense of rest and relief in Him. That's one's joy in the midst of sorrow. Not a fake smile. Oh yeah, well, everything's fine and we know your life is a mess. No, it's not that. Maybe you've been guilty, especially in these last two years, You've been guilty of letting circumstances steal your joy. I know I've, I've been threatened by it. Maybe you've learned how to sort of fake it with Christianese when really deep down you're actually despairing a little bit or maybe a lot. Your sorrows are making you despair and you haven't found that happy relief in God's sovereignty. And that can come in many facets. Let me say in this congregation, when you look out at, let's say, the political scene, does it then make you fall into despair? Or do you have a happy relief that God is still on the throne? That's joy in the midst of sorrow. 
But if there's just despair, well, that's not joy. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that as you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit will change you and produce joy even in the midst of suffering. And and so then if you lack joy, the antidote is not to say, oh, don't worry, be happy. You know, it's like the old song that nobody would remember. The antidote is to look to Christ and ask the Father to irrigate your soul by the Spirit. And there's a lot of folks, even here in this church, you're struggling, but there's not enough prayer where you're asking God, change my heart, irrigate my heart, give me joy. I'm, I'm dehydrated spiritually. Hydrate me by your word and spirit. And you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have joy because you don't ask for it. But it is the fruit of the Spirit, is joy. What about peace? Irene. That's where we get the word irenic. Irenic is, is, is to be peacemaking and peaceful in your, in your speech, as opposed to polemic, which is, I'm on the attack. I'm, I'm on the fight. Right now, the peace that the, that the Spirit produces is one of the notable absences in our churches. The peace that the Spirit produces is one of the notable absences in our churches. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but we all feel embattled on every side. And so when you feel embattled, you're saying, well, how can we have peace? How can we have peace in this environment? Aren't we living in a hostile culture? Satan and his agents are trying to destroy us. How can the Spirit produce peace if we experience war every day? Well, the answer is to see which enemy the Spirit makes you at peace with. And this is where we've kind of forgotten this whole component. Who is the enemy that the Spirit makes you at peace with? The Spirit makes you at peace with God. It's with God. That's what matters. Are you at peace with God? And my guess is, if you're like me, and again, I'm just preaching myself here. If you're like me, you tend to forget that, that that's what matters. Not the so-called enemies, all the enemies around me horizontally, But am I at peace with God? Is God my enemy or have I been reconciled to God? And more importantly, God has been reconciled to me. That God no longer is my enemy. God no longer is against me. That's what the Spirit testifies to is that peace treaty. See, what could be more important? Being reconciled to God so that God's not our enemy and we're not God's enemy. That's the most important peace treaty in the universe. Not whether, oh, well, we've, we're at peace in some society that you can find, which you can't since the fall of Adam. You're never going to be at peace in society as if you thought you were. 
The Spirit continually reminds us of that peace, testifying of that peace, upholding that peace of the reconciliation between God and man in Christ Jesus. On November 11th, of course, in Canada, we celebrate Remembrance Day. You know, it's, a, it's this continuing testimony across Canada that we are now at peace with the enemy combatants of World War I. That's where it started. The peace remains. But that's what the Spirit does. He bears fruit, the fruit of that reconciled peace that Jesus won on the cross and which God vindicated when Christ rose from the dead. Now you might say, I want peace within. There's even the old, old gospel songs talk about peace within. I want inner peace. If I wanted to sell a book, just write a book on how to find inner peace, right? All kinds of books on that. I, I, I want to experience peace from the warfare in my head and in my heart. But you have to see that our inner turmoil, our inner turmoil comes because we forget, if we're a Christian believer, we forget that we have been reconciled to God. If we are peace, we're at peace with God, if that's the case, then all other conflicts are marginal. They're all marginal. Like the conflicts in your life with you, with your employers, your employees, with your extended family, with your neighbors, in the church here, in your own close family, or in your marriage, all of those conflicts, they are all marginal compared to whether or not you're reconciled to God. Because imagine going through each day. And this is why throughout the city of Calgary, all these folks, they don't, they don't realize what it is to go through each day with God setting His face against you and having all the resources and strategy of His entire universe at His disposal against you so that any breath you take is by His mercy alone, but He has all of this arrayed in judgment upon you and curse upon you. That's awful. That's why you need to flee to Christ from the wrath to come. But for the Christian to know, that doesn't apply to me. God's not against me. God's not there trying to snare me, trip me up, trying to club me with a stick, trying to ruin all of my best laid plans. God's not there for that. He wants to be good to me by drawing me to Himself. All the strife, even in my head, is less of a big deal than the end of strife between me and God. And and it's easy for us to forget that. James said, in James 4.1, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And, and then he goes on and he says the benefits of the spiritual peace treaty. He says in verse 8, this is James, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You you can draw near. You're on his team. He's on your team. 
You can draw near to Him. You're not at war with Him. You're troubled, draw near to Him. He will draw near to you because you're at peace with Him. The Spirit produces the fruit of peace because you are reconciled to God. He isn't at war with you and you need to stop acting like He is. The Christian believer, and in this church, and in myself, our temptation is to act as if God is still at war with us. And He is not. We're reconciled to Him, so that Paul said in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it. We have peace with God now and forever. If you aren't resting then in that peace, then you'll always, you're always going to be a bit punchy. You're, you won't feel secure. When you're insecure, that's when we're defensive, right? Push back. Why are Christians today, broadly speaking, pretty punchy? I I think it's because we're losing the gospel. We're losing the priority of a reconciliation with God. But if you're reconciled to God and you're at peace with God, it's kind of like, yeah, there's stuff going on. Nah, whatever. I'm with God. He wins. Yeah, it's all going to work out. Instead of, oh, well, who who should I vote for? Right? Or whatever it's going to be. I'm saying don't vote. I'm just saying we can get fixated and anxious about these things. What happens if I get sick? Okay. Yeah. You're reconciled to God. It's okay. When we don't feel secure, you start to think that your survival is up to you. It isn't. Your survival was guaranteed when Jesus didn't survive and then he rose from the dead. That's that's where your security is. Peace. What about patience? You thought it was convicting before. Makrothemia is the Greek word. And this is a hard one for all of us. Being patient with others. But most of all, and this is one we don't admit, you're certainly not going to tell the pastor this, is, is actually being patient with God. Right? What's the opposite of, be, of, of patience? It's being in a rush, maybe. But most of all, the opposite of patience is to insist on your own way especially your own timing, right? Why do we insist on things happening on our timing? It's because we feel entitled for them to be that way. We wouldn't be so impatient if we trusted that God is entitled to our time. God is entitled to our time. You can't be patient unless you realize that. God is entitled to my time. And the Spirit produces 
in us a regular reminder that our time is on God's clock. The speed or the pace of things, they can change, they can stay the same. It's all by His sovereign will, not my sovereign will. And so, just to ask yourself, is this the case then, do you recognize this when it comes then to your general impatience with your spouse, with your children, with your in-laws, with your boss, with your employees, with your government, with your pastor? All of it is a reflection of a quenching of the Spirit in your life. By contrast, a filling of the Spirit would cause you to be patient. Not in a Buddhist way, in this sort of detached way, but patient because you're looking to God's providential timing in everything. You're you're seeing, okay, God, what are you doing here? What's the pace here? What's your providential timing? And you're trusting His wisdom to do things in His way, on His clock. And such patience then can even be called, as it's translated from the King James, it can even be called long-suffering. Because I'm on God's clock. I'll trust His timing. Maybe I'm suffering along, but I'm going to be patient as I suffer because I can suffer long because I trust His timing. That's a fruit of the Spirit, being patience. What about kindness? Kindness. And I've got to get on my horse and get through these. Kindness. Christotes is the Greek word. Luther says of this Greek word, Christotes is a sweetness of life. Think about kindness. Are you a kind person? I'm not talking about personality. Are you kind because the Spirit is producing kindness? Maybe contrary to your personality. Luther says, Christotes is a sweetness of life. Not only goodness, but also kindness. Then he says this. He says, a man is kind or sweet when he is friendly and well-disposed, easily approachable, not harsh, but pleasant and joyful. He makes an effort to have people enjoy being around him. That was convicting. He makes an effort... To have people enjoy being around him. They are glad to hear him speak. He is companionable, affable, and easy for everyone to get along with. He is a brother to every man you can think of. This is a sweet manner. That's what Luther said. And I, if you think of how sharp Luther could be to write that, it's pretty remarkable. The test for us is when our correctly righteous indignation, when that's awakened by events beyond our control, and yet we still have to interact with people who are close to us, I think that's when we're really put to it. And in those cases, and maybe again I'm just preaching to myself, we can be prickly, harsh, rough, callous, bad-tempered, bad-natured. We can lack Kindness. Kindness 
we, 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 can, we can lack it. And, and even when we do, when we kind of act, we can lack kindness. But if we do then show kindness, we can bear the fruit of the Spirit and we resemble the character of Christ who had kindness toward us in His coming to earth to save sinners like us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Titus, 4, Titus 3, 4. The Reformed theologian Shedd said, Christotes, this Greek word, is not the attribute by which God is good, that's His holiness, but by which He does good, His benevolence. And that's, are you kind? Do you do good in this manner? Which, of course, then you're going to be characterized by goodness. Agathosune, similar word to the one we just saw, but it's not referring to good actions. In this case, it's being good as a, as a typical characteristic. So that goodness is what, goodness as a characteristic, is what saturates a person overall. Its opposite, of course, would be evil. And, and here, like, there's, enough, there's enough in our society, and even in this church, there's enough of an ability to have a double life. I have to ask, do you, do you have evil thoughts, dark desires, transgressive pursuits, and are those characteristic of your life? If so, you're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Now, as you're sanctified, as your Spirit-led, you will actually change and become more and more good. Goodness will be the dominant feature of your life, not evil. Now, when I say that, I have to address then maybe some well-meaning folks, but it's actually there's some false theology that creeps into people's thinking. It comes in this form. They're going to hear me say this, and they'll say, oh, there's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me. They'll quote Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And they'll say, Isaiah, all my righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And all that is true for the person outside of Christ. If we're walking in the Spirit, we will be characterized by general goodness. If we're acting in ways that are not good, that are wrong, immoral, wicked, or selfish, then we aren't bearing the fruit of the Spirit, but rather the works of the flesh. So in other words, Christians should have a different life. This goes against the teaching. used to be this guy named Tulian Chavidjan. He had this book called Glorious Ruin. And he would kind of brag about how messed up and ungodly his life was, but then he was pleading Jesus. Well, that just, that just means either you're not the real deal or you're not seeking to bear the fruit of the Spirit because you should change and your life should become good. In Christ, you're being made progressively more and more good so that your ethics match your status. Your practice will match your position. Your testimony will match all of your entitlement. And your life will match this liberation. We can expect then that Christians will grow in being more and more good. A couple more. Pistis, faithfulness. Greek words, pistis, faithfulness. Makes sense that the fruit of the Spirit would be something that lasts. There's got to be a continuance. 
And the most important work that the Spirit continually produces is what? Faith. Belief. you got to keep, keep on believing. Literally, faith. The continuance of faith is to be faithful and to be characterized by faithfulness. It is then a life of faith. And it is not just a single moment of faith. Not a, not a single thing. It's not a, a fleeting faith or a leap in the dark. But it's a faith that continues. It's not a faith gained and then lost. It is simply the continued reliance and rest upon God and upon His promises. Why is it that people, you know, professing Christians in their 30s or so, they're deconstructing their faith is what it's called now? In other words, why are they quitting? Well, it's because they can't fake it anymore. That's why. It shows they're just as confused as ever, but they didn't really have a real faith because the Spirit produces faithfulness. You keep on believing. The Christian life is the one that keeps on keeping on by the power of the Spirit. So that's faithfulness. Does that mark you? Or are you wanting to chuck it all? My, my sense is you're here, so the Spirit is causing you to keep on believing, in, even in spite of the struggles. Two more. This one is maybe challenging. Gentleness. Proutes. The older writers, the older translations was described as meekness. This is that manner of interaction that doesn't have to exert power or force or coercion, even if it has a right to it. This is that capability that's measured, and it's attentive to the right amount of pressure that is supposed that, that someone can, can actually bear with. You know the difference between, especially in our household, you know the difference between someone putting their arm around you gently and putting you in a headlock. There's a difference in gentleness there. You know, there's, what's the pressure that you're applying? Well, gentleness knows it's not applying more pressure than people can bear. This is an area that a lot of young men in particular can ignore. They can be lazy in not wanting to develop meekness. Because it takes effort to be precise in having meek, gentle interactions. And that's, I, I ascribe it to laziness. It's not that, oh, well, he's just a rough character. Well, I, I just think, okay, fine. But are, is he going to apply himself? To, to actually seek to be gentle and meek. You've got to work at it. It's the only way that a man can become a gentleman. And in our society, we've got to say, it's the only way a woman can become a gentlewoman. Because there's a lot of women that are not gentle. They're not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 6.1, Paul shows the practical expression of this kind of meekness. And he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a club. No, no. You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know right the appropriate amount of pressure that's required. 
keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Well, that, that kind of meekness in confrontation is not easy to do. We all struggle with it. And no wonder you need the Holy Spirit himself to restore in a spirit of gentleness. That's, you, you need that help. Of course, Jesus himself promised the Spirit's blessing when he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? But you're not going to be meek unless you have the Spirit's blessing. The Spirit will produce it. Last of all, self-control. Self-control. We'll get wrapped up here. Self-control, or as the King James says, temperance. Eg kratia, which is more than, it's not just temperance as in tempering your temper. It's not just your anger that is to be controlled. It's all parts of yourself that are to be taken in hand. They're taken in hand. You're not to be democratic with your flesh. You're not to let your desires vote for which way is best. But instead, you're eggcratic with your flesh. You take your ego in hand, in kratos. You control your emotions. You control your speech. You control your desires. You will still have, of course, occasions where you'll feel pressure to let your passions out, especially on Twitter at 9 o'clock at night on Saturday night. You've got to let them go. That's your temptation. You just want to let them go. You want to, you want to just let fly. You just want to, you just want to it, it's easier just to let it blast. Or an argument with your spouse, just let it blast. It's easier. But that's the opposite of self-control. Unlimited passion, unlimited desire, unlimited venting, unlimited demanding. That's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. Namely, self-controlled. So the question is, are you self-controlled? Or do your passions get the best of you? Do you let yourself get out of hand, literally? Do you say things you shouldn't or look at things that you ought not to? The point then, to bring it to a close, is you can be changed. I just say simply this. You need to look to Jesus. It's not a cliche. You can be changed as you look to him. We've learned before that the Spirit is the nourishing sap that produces the fruit. We've also learned that if you aren't changing, the answer is not focus on the fruit. It's not try harder. Instead, it is look to Jesus. And this is it. This, I'm bringing it to the end. Why look to Jesus when we're talking about the Spirit? It is because Jesus himself bore the metaphorical fruit Jesus' life expresses love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. So you don't mystically and magically look to Christ. Rather, we focus on Christ and the characteristics he models and calls us to. Jesus with the woman at the well. Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus overthrowing overthrowing the tables in the temple. He didn't kill everybody. The self-control he had is amazing. Jesus gentle with sinners like you and me. Fixate on the person and work and summons of Jesus Christ. Ask the Father to make you like Christ. Ask the Spirit to show you 
Christ. And the result is that you will become more Christ-like and you will be filled with Christ's Spirit and you will bear more and more fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. You, you will be changed. You can be and you will be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would change each soul here in deep and powerful ways to your own glory. Do this work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and respond in spirit-filled worship. Please rise. Just a reminder, next Sunday we're going to have a baptism service, and it's a time to celebrate the Spirit's work in people's lives. And if you've been convicted of your sin, I encourage you, don't, don't run away from God and His Word. Run to Him. And this is the summons even of our benediction. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That is free grace given by the Spirit. It's for us all. Believe on Him. Go in peace. You're dismissed.